Before we dive into reading our scripture reading this morning, a quick refresher is in order. Uh, about a month ago, we talked about Acts 3 and saw this miraculous, miraculous healing. Um, when a disabled beggar uh, approached John and Peter for some money, Peter healed a man in the name of Jesus Christ. Soon a large crowd gathered to witness the miracle, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, used that moment to proclaim the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said that the man was healed in the name. And then he added that the healing pointed towards something far greater, the ultimate healing that was to come, the ultimate healing from the clutches of sin and death in the same name of Jesus Christ. And our reading this morning picks up the story from there. So let's turn to Acts 4, verses 1 through 31. Uh, Acts 4, 1 through 31. You may find it on page 1696 in the Pew Bibles. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked, how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved." When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been, who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called in them again, or called them in again, and commended them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. 
On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that, had, all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his holy anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is for the Lord. So far in the story of Acts, the early church has been on this promising trajectory. Acts 2 brought us the powerful event of Pentecost where the disciples received the Holy Spirit and began proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ in different languages. In Acts 3, we witnessed the extraordinary healing in the same name of Jesus Christ. But in Acts 4, we discover a rising action as the early church faces its first persecution. Rising action in a narrative arc is the tension that drives the story forward. Think of the Toy Story movie, the first one. The introduction of Buzz creates tension as he replaces Woody as Andy's new favorite toy. And you know the rest of the story. Similarly, in the movie Anchorman, the tension is created when Ron Burgundy is forced to share his news desk with the highly qualified female reporter, Veronica Corningstone. These tensions drive the story forward, and they create anticipation toward the climax. When we apply the same concept to the book of Acts, we find that the name of Jesus Christ takes center stage in its rising action. Acts 2 and 3 introduce us the name of Jesus Christ and the power, and the early church that are committed to proclaiming this name. Now in Acts 4, the name creates tension between the early church and another group. The latter group comprises the priests, the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, the high priests, his family, as well as the all-important group, Sanhedrin. This impressive list represents the powerful elites in Jerusalem. The tension arises from their fear of losing their earthly authority to the name of Jesus Christ. They inquire about the power or the name behind the apostles' healing, and they do everything within their power to silence the proclamation of the same name. They do this because they understand that the power of Jesus' names comes from the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Anointed One, whom they crucified but whom God raised 
from the dead. So they seek to suppress that truth because they want to preserve their earthly power and authority. And it's understandable because it is part of the human nature for people to seek the preservation of whatever the power they have. So when confronted with power as mighty as the name of Jesus Christ, the most natural human response may just be to look for ways to confine the name and control it. In Acts 4, these powerful elites use their political authority and clout to do so because that was the most effective means available to them at that point. Now, in our socio-cultural climate, there are a plethora of ways in which God or in which people seek to suppress the truth of Jesus' name. Among them, relativism stands out as the most commonly used approach. Relativism is one of the defining characteristics of our time. It asserts that there is no absolute truth, that all truths are relative, and that whatever a person believes is true for that person. So let's do a quick exercise here. Raise your hand if you have seen one of those popular coexist bumper stickers. All right, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Um, Now raise your hand if you have used or heard phrases like, uh, that is my truth, or this is your truth, or my personal favorite, you do you, boo. Raise your hand. Keep them up. Keep them up. Look around. Now, keep your hands. You can, you can put your hands down. If you did not raise your hand, congratulations, you're a, truly a unicorn. Um, I don't know what world you've been living in, but it's not my world. Um, all jokes aside, I did that exercise to highlight how prevalent relativism is in our world today. Now, religious relativism takes this concept a step further and argues that there is no one true religion and that all religions are equally valid and true for those who believe in them. You know, the message behind those coexist bumper stickers is exactly that, that Christianity is true for this person while Islam or some other religion is true for that person. It says that we should just get along and be friends instead of trying to argue what is correct and what is wrong. I experienced such religious relativism recently during my trip down to New Mexico. The team and I um, that went on this service trip had an opportunity to learn about the Zuni religion from this Zuni man. At one point, he referred to Christianity as white people's religion. I was taken aback and a little offended, to be honest. But, you know, I I gave him the benefit of the doubt, right? Maybe, perhaps, he didn't see the only Asian person sitting in the room because everyone was wearing a face mask. And to be fair to him, at that point in our trip, I had not gotten much sun just yet, so my skin was looking pretty pale. So there is that. But I mention this to highlight the religious relativism behind his comment. I sense this 
innuendo that Christianity was true for white people while his religion, the Zuni religion, was true for his people, the Zuni people. And my sense was later confirmed when he made comments about how Christians and Zuni people should just do their own things in their own spheres as long as they pray to their own gods for blessings like rain and peace. While our modern ears may find that sort of let's coexist message appealing, what our modern eyes fail to recognize is that that is just religious relativism at work, trivializing the very concept of absolute truth. In this regard, I greatly appreciate the work of Leslie Newbegin in his book, The Gospel in the Pluralist Society. He writes that by suggesting that all religions are equally valid and true, religious relativism reduces religions from matters of objective truth to matters of personal opinion. Religious relativism then becomes the ideal way to confine and control the name and the power of Jesus by simply suppressing and reducing its absolute truth to matters of personal opinion. But we know that the name isn't a matter of personal opinion. It is the truth, the way, and the life. As Newbegin writes in his book, the gospel, the truth of Jesus' name, is not one option among many. It's not an illustration of an idea or an opinion, but the story of actions taken by the person of Jesus Christ by which the human condition, talking about sinfulness, brokenness, and even death, is completely changed. And we see Peter proclaiming this truth in verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. This is the absolute truth, and this truth is not just for white people. It's not just for pale Christians like me. It's for everybody. And having experienced this transformative truth and power of Jesus' name, John and Peter couldn't help but preach and proclaim the same name. When the elites tried to silence them, the apostles boldly challenged the elites to consider whether it was right for them to listen to humans rather than God. In our socio-cultural climate, influenced, heavily influenced by this relativism, the same challenge is ever so pertinent. It's not a passing remark when we read this, it's a genuine call for us to be bold in following God's will. Even though talk of absolute truth is often seen as oppressive and outdated, we cannot simply resort to presenting the gospel truth of Jesus' name as a personal opinion. We should boldly proclaim the name as the only one that saves because that is the absolute truth. At the same time, we must also embody the name with Christ-like humility and engage with others with Christ-like love. And for this reason, I have always admired the late Tim Keller for his ability to present the gospel truth of Jesus' name without any condescension or demeaning others. 
but in my personal life, um, it was my conversation with a Muslim boy that really showed me how this is done. It actually happened here at the church. A, a while ago, there was a party in the youth room um, cele- celebrating the naturalization of this uh, Muslim immigrant family. I don't quite remember how the conversation came about, but at one point I found myself listening to this Muslim boy explaining to me the differences between Islam and Christianity. When he was done, he looked right into my eyes with utmost humility and love, and he said, I pray that you and the rest of the world will come to see the truth. A Muslim boy, a middle school-aged Muslim boy said that to me. I pray that you and the rest of the world will come to see the truth. I was going to ask you at this point, when was the last time you prayed a similar prayer? But I guess we just prayed um, during the service of confession. Thank you, Peter, for taking my thunder. Um, So let's take it up a notch. When's the last time you proclaim the salvation only found in Jesus' name to somebody? When's the last time we did that? What's holding us back? What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of the consequences it might have on our relationship, our reputation, and our status? As believers, we are called to boldly share the gospel truth of Jesus in a world that seeks to suppress that truth. We recognize the weightiness of this challenge. We feel the tension. But God is a God of goodness, and he has not left us without any help or support. In Acts 4, we find at least two things that comfort us and reassure us in the face of socio-cultural pressures. First, we find comfort and reassurance in the fact that Jesus' name is mighty. It's all-powerful. When the elites of Jerusalem threatened Peter and John not to speak about Jesus, they relied on that power all the more. And brothers and sisters, we have the same power, the power of Jesus' name on our side because he has given us his spirit. It's in us. And we have witnessed the firsthand what this name can do. It can cast out demons. It can move mountains bring light into darkness. It can heal the broken like the beggar at the temple. And above all, it has the power to save a wretch like me. We have the powerful name of Jesus Christ, and we should live into it more. Living into the name doesn't just mean we proclaim it with boldness. It's more than that. It also means embodying its transformative truth. When we live into the name, it empowers us not only to speak about Jesus, but also to be more like him. The power of Jesus' name shapes our hearts. It gives us Christ-like desires. When that happens, our proclamation of the name is no longer about proving ourselves right and others wrong. No, it, it stems from a heart that really, truly longs for everyone in the world to see the truth salvation only found in Jesus' name. The second piece of comfort and reassurance we have is the community 
of Christians. After being released, John and Peter went straight to their own community. And when they came, the community prayed with them, but not for their safety or for the threats or pressures to cease. No, the community prayed for boldness. They prayed that together they would join Peter and John in living into the name all the more so they could do the work together. See, the proclamation of Jesus' name was never meant to be an individual activity. It was always meant to be shared within the context of a community of believers who are called in the same name. As Newbegin writes, since the gospel truth does not come as a disembodied message, but as the message of a, of a community, the community's life must be so ordered that it makes sense, so that it makes sense to those who are invited to adhere to it. It is not enough for us to invite neighbors and friends to church if they're never going to see the gospel truth lived out in this community. Our collective life must demonstrate the power and the transformative truth of Jesus' name that we claim and proclaim. That means we're not alone in this mission. We do it as a community of believers, believers who are committed to proclaiming the name and committed to joining each other in living into the name all the more because that is our strength, because that is our hope. Within such a community, we can engage, encourage one another, lift each other up, and provide support for one another. That's what we see in Acts 4 and in the rest of the book. A community proclaiming the name together. The name of Jesus Christ did not make the threats go away, nor did it make it any easier for them to live out this truth and proclaim the name. However, the name gave the early church everything it needed to be a faithful witness in a world that rejected the name. And nothing has changed today. This world still rejects the name. But the name still gives us everything that we need to be bold and faithful witnesses In the name of Jesus Christ, we find strength, courage, and wisdom to boldly proclaim that name. And in this community that bears the same name, we find support, encouragement, and cooperation from individuals, brothers and sisters like those that you see around us, to work together collectively to proclaim the name and live out that gospel truth. God calls us to be bold and faithful witnesses for the name so that the entire world may come and see the truth and make sense of it. So what is it that you need as individuals today? And what is it that we as a collective body, a community, what is it that we need to be bold witnesses faithful witnesses in a world that rejects the name of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me?
our Lord, our God. We thank you for reminding us that the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, is our strength, our courage, and our wisdom. In the name you give us all that we need to be bold and faithful witnesses. So we once again seek the power and the transformative truth of that name. God, we ask that you use us in our lives so that the world may see and understand the gospel truth which you have made available to all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. God, we seek the name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.